Well, happy Easter, everybody. My name is Scott Raines. I'm one of the pastors here. I love movies and I love sports. And when you can put a montage together like that to help you experience the thrill of victory, it doesn't get a whole lot better than that. Uh, Here's something that I notice about my fandom. Uh, Maybe this is true for you. Uh, When when I am cheering on the team that I want to win, whether it's a sports team or a a show choir, whatever it might be, and, and when the team is performing not so great, When they are not winning, there's a a certain pronoun that I will use when talking about that. What's wrong with them? Why aren't they doing better? Uh, Their defense is terrible. They need a more creative offense. Why don't they get their heads in the game? What's wrong with them? But when the team that I'm cheering for, rooting for, is doing well, I use a completely different pronoun. We look so good. We're scoring at will. We're unstoppable. We won. We won. Really? We won? What did I do? I'm not on the team. I wasn't at any practices. I'm certainly not part of any strength and conditioning program. Uh, Thank you. You're the only uh, service that didn't laugh at that one. Um, I've been here so long I've lost weight apparently. Um, I, I didn't step foot on the field of competition. The, the outcome was completely out of my control. Why do I say we won? Our theme for Easter at Hope this year is we are the champions. And I hope you sort of felt as you were coming in to worship today, that you're kind of coming in for a championship celebration. Uh, we wanted it to feel like you're coming into a stadium. We, we hung banners from the rafters uh, down on the other end of the building outside of the reservoir uh, to celebrate the championships, the great men and women of faith, the victories that they have won uh, with God's help that we can read about in Scripture. We have popcorn and we have pennants that you can uh, raise. We even let the band go a little crazy like they're introducing Michael Jordan and the world champion Chicago Bulls from back in the 90s, but they're really introducing the risen Savior Jesus. Can we just praise God for a second for all the people, volunteers and staff who've been working so hard to make our Easter services pretty fun this year. We are the champions because it's Easter and God has won a victory for us over sin and death. God loved the world so much that God gave his one and only son that whoever believes in Jesus will not die but will live forever and for centuries as the followers of Jesus have gathered together to worship on resurrection day They have proclaimed the threefold mystery of the Christian faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We are the champions. And notice the pronoun that gets used. We. So we have to ask, don't we? What did we do to win this victory? What did we do to secure the championship? Is it because we are good enough? moral enough, righteous enough? Is that how we win the victory? Is it because God really appreciates it when we are super helpful and creative, when we prove that we are driven and capable? Is it because of our loyal faithfulness? Is it because of our sheer strength of will and we follow the rules and we comply with expectations? Is that why we are the champions? I keep reading through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You get to verse 57. It's on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are the champions, not because of anything we've done. We are the champions because of what God has done for us through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that's why we want to throw a party this year. That's why we want to celebrate. That's why we want to go all out for Easter. The scriptures talk about this all over the place, lots of different places in scripture. God gives us this victory. God gives us this free gift because God loves us. Now look at Romans chapter 8, verse 37. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. I'm guessing there are some people here today for Easter worship. You couldn't wait to come. It's your favorite worship experience of the entire year because you know we're going to go a little bit crazy and you're ready to go a little bit crazy this year because life's been really good. It feels like you're winning at home and at work and you just want to give thanks to God for the way life is going. And I'm guessing there are other people who come into this room for an Easter worship service who are in a very different kind of place. Paul actually writes Romans chapter 8 to people who feel like they are not winning. Life is hard. Life is filled with all sorts of things that make them groan. Trials and hardship and suffering and obstacles they're, they're not sure they'll be able to overcome. And so when Paul writes Romans chapter 8, he's, he's writing it to everyone. And part of what he's saying is it doesn't matter what your circumstances might be. Because of the resurrection, overwhelming victory is ours because God loves us. We are the champions because God loves us. Now remember, the people who write the scriptures are actually real people. Now we, we don't have time to go into it today, but there's a science called textual criticism, and textual criticism is all about how do we verify the authenticity of ancient documents? How do we know the history of the Romans? How do we know the history of the Greeks? Well, they use scientific criticism to figure out what can we believe is true. And using the science of textual criticism, both secular and uh, religious scholars agree that by far the Bible, according to textual criticism, is the most uh, trustworthy ancient document of any document that we have. So we can know, we can trust what we're reading in the Bible was actually written by the people who were living through these things. It doesn't mean you have to believe it, but you can trust what was written was actually written by these people. Eyewitnesses of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, people like Peter, the impulsive disciple, who is always biting off a little more than he can chew. On the night Jesus is arrested, Peter defiantly declares, Jesus, I'm willing to go to the end with you. I'm going to fight to the end. I'm going to go down swinging. But before morning comes, he's denied even knowing Jesus three times. His faith was weak. He lost hope, and then the resurrection happened, and something changed for Peter. After the resurrection, he's able to write this. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The apostle John, the beloved disciple, similar kind of reality in, in what he talks about. Remember, John's the one... When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says to John, I want you to take care of my mother. Uh, after my resurrection, after my uh, ascension back into heaven, I want you to care for my mother as if she were your own. And after the resurrection, John writes, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. And then there's Saul, the religious leader who is convinced the followers of Jesus are dangerous 
And then he has a face-to-face encounter with the resurrected Jesus that changes everything for Saul. It changes his name. It changes the direction of his life. He ends up writing most of the New Testament, starting a lot of churches all around the Roman Empire. After this life-changing encounter with the resurrected Jesus, Paul writes, God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, God gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. We are the champions, but it's nothing to boast about. We are the champions. That doesn't make us better than anybody else. We are the champions. It's nothing that we did to earn that victory. We are the champions because of God's unfailing love and amazing grace. We're saved by grace through faith and what God has done for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we gather together just like churches are doing all across uh, this town, all across this world, to celebrate, to open up their hearts in worship and in praise because of this amazing gift. Now, we've got to keep it real. In a room like this, there are plenty of people who don't come in with hearts full of faith, who come in with questions, who come with, with doubts, who come in with real hurt. Uh, maybe it would be fair to say there are a lot of people in this room who are kind of like that character Red in the movie The Shawshank Redemption. Red commits a crime when he is a young man and he gets a life sentence. He's sentenced to life in prison and yet for some reason decade after decade he has to go in front of the parole board and the parole board basically wants him to prove to them why they should set him free. Have you done enough? Have you changed enough? Are you sorry enough that We should let you out of prison. We should give you your freedom. And decade after decade, this request for parole gets rejected. Take a look. Sit down. Ellis Boyd Redding, your files say you've served 40 years of a life sentence. You feel you've been rehabilitated? Rehabilitated? Well, now, let me see. You know, I don't have any idea what that means. Well, it means you're ready to rejoin society. I know what you think it means, Sonny. To me, it's just a made-up word. A politician's word, so that young fellows like yourself can wear a suit and a tie and have a job. What do you really want to know? Am I sorry for what I did? Well, I... As not a day goes by, I don't feel regret. Not because I'm in here, because you think I should. I look back on the way I was then. A young, stupid kid who committed that terrible crime. I want to talk to him. I want to try to talk some sass to him. Tell him the way things are. 
but I can't. That kid's long gone, and this old man is all that's left. I gotta live with that. So you go on and stamp your form, Sonny, and stop wasting my time. Red is convinced rehabilitated is a made-up word. He believes he has no future. He has no hope. In fact, he says to his buddy Andy one time, hope is a dangerous thing. And maybe that's how you view Easter. It's another day when the crazy pastor and his brainwashed staff are going to try to get you to buy into the hype of hope. How can we manipulate your emotions this year? I know, let's throw out t-shirts before the service begins. I know, let's have the band sing a little bit louder than they normally do. I know, I know, let's have a light show this year. That will convince you that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. But you're not buying it. You wish we'd stop wasting your time. Maybe for some of you, you are convinced resurrection is just a made-up word to make people feel better about death. You know, for a lot of years, the majority of humans on this planet did not believe in resurrection. For a lot of human history, everybody just understood when somebody dies, you bury them. Put them in the grave, and they stay in the grave. And that was certainly the expectation when Jesus died. In Luke's gospel, as he's talking about the death of Jesus on the cross in Luke chapter 23, he says, after Jesus died, there's a man named Joseph from a village called Arimathea. He goes to the Roman governor Pilate, and Joseph asks for permission to take Jesus' dead body down off the cross and place it in a tomb that Joseph owned. Here's how Luke ends chapter 23. I'll start reading in verse 55. As Jesus' body was taken away, the women from Galilee followed and saw the tomb where his body was placed. Then they went home and prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. But, time, but by the time they were finished, the Sabbath had begun, so they rested as required by the law. Chapter 23 ends. You turn the page to chapter 24. The subtitle in my Bible says, The Resurrection. Here's what verse 1 says. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. So one of the reasons I believe the Easter story, one of the reasons I believe in the resurrection is because of the details that the gospel writers include. For example, if you read through John's account, John says that Joseph got 75 pounds, a very specific amount, 75 pounds of burial spices, and this is what the women were using to prepare Jesus' body uh, to be buried, as was the custom of that day. Remember, Jesus dies the middle of the afternoon on Friday, a couple hours before sunset, and at sunset, the, Pas uh, the Sabbath day would begin. And so they didn't have enough time for a formal funeral. They got the process started, but when the sun set, they had to go home. Meanwhile, Pilate and the religious leaders are concerned that the followers of Jesus might come in the middle of the night, steal Jesus' dead body, take it out of the tomb, and then start spreading a rumor about a resurrection. 
So they place a couple of Roman soldiers as guards at the entrance to Jesus' tomb, and then they roll a stone across the entrance. I don't know what image pops into your mind when you think about the stone at the entrance of Jesus' tomb, but I'm guessing for most of us, it's kind of like a circular disc, easy to roll, almost like a, a, a pocket door, just goes in and out, in and out, depending if you need to go in. What archaeological evidence is showing us, 98% of all of the tombs that they have uncovered and dug up, uh, the stone that gets placed at the entrance of the tomb, it's not a circle. It's not like a disc shape. It's more like a Tetris piece that you, you kind of have to fold into the entrance. And you, you flip it out, and then you twist it, and you flip it, but it doesn't, you don't roll it. You don't roll that stone away. And they were heavy, and they were large. And one of the details that gets included in Mark's gospel is these women who love Jesus so much that they want to make sure that they are honoring his body after his death with a proper burial. And they spent all Friday night, all day Saturday, all Sunday night waiting to go back and finish the job with these 75 pounds of burial spices. They've thought through all the details so that they can do this well, except for one detail. This is what Mark says in chapter 16, verse 3. Read this out loud with me. Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? Uh, as a pastor, I officiate a lot of funerals. And it's a really uh, holy time. It, it's, it's quite humbling to have the honor of walking with families who are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. When somebody dies in our church family or in this community and and we're doing the funeral, one of the first things that happens is we meet with that family to kind of go through all of the details. Do you want to have a visitation? What day? What time? Do you want to have uh, the funeral service? What day? What time? What songs do you want to sing? What scripture do you want to read? Is someone from the family going to want to speak? Are you going to put together a slideshow of pictures and, and memories? And detail after detail after detail. And inevitably, every time I'm meeting with a family to plan uh, these funerals and to go through the details, at some point, someone in the grieving family will say, apologetically, can we make this decision later? Do we have to decide right now? We're struggling to come up with a decision. There's a reason why counselors encourage people, when you're in a season of grief, try not to make a major life decision. Should I sell a house or buy a house? Should I quit a job or uh, take a new job? When you're in the season of grief, you don't think as clearly as you normally do. Your mind messes with you when you're grieving. I think that's part of the reason Mark includes this question that the women ask. They thought they had all the details covered, but they forgot this detail. Who will roll away the stone for us? They get to the tomb, and then Luke writes this in chapter 24, verse 2. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. And really all I'm trying to help you think about at this point is the women were not expecting this. The women were not expecting that the stone would be rolled away. They were not expecting that the tomb would be empty. They were not expecting that Jesus would be alive. They were not expecting the resurrection. And so Luke tells us there's a couple of angels sitting on the stone that's been rolled away, and they say to the women, the angels do, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He's not here, he's risen. And this is pretty exciting to the women. They run back to the upper room to tell the disciples this good news, but look what Luke, Luke writes in verse 11. 
the story sounded like nonsense to the men. So they didn't believe it. Again, when you start piecing together the details from this gospel account and this gospel account and this gospel account, you piece together the details, it seems like part of the message the gospel writers wanted to communicate about the first Easter is the resurrection rocked people. And it makes me wonder, when is the last time the resurrection rocked you? What is keeping the resurrection from rocking you? Maybe for some of you, you're like the disciples. You hear the story and it sounds like nonsense to you. Because you know, when people die, they don't come back to life. You know, it's interesting. Every time I officiate a funeral, there's a moment. There's a moment for me where I wonder, okay, Lord, is this the day? Is this the funeral? You're going to bring someone back from the dead like you did for Lazarus? It hasn't happened yet. But I think I'm going to keep wondering. Most people, though, they don't wonder that. Someone dies and, and they stay dead. It's nonsense to believe. It, so Jesus is the only one ever in the history of the world who comes back from death to life. Maybe for some of you, the part of the story that's hard to believe is that there is a God, a creator God, a God who created the entire universe, also created you and knows you and calls you by name and forgives you and has grace for you. But maybe there's something inside you that just kind of screams out, I can't believe that. If God really knew me, if God really knew what I have done, if God knew my past, there's no way that God would love me, that God would want to be around me. Maybe for some of you there's a voice that's been inside of your head for quite a while, but it's been growing louder and louder lately. A voice that has you pretty much convinced you are all alone in this world. You are powerless. You're incapable. You're trapped. Things are never going to get better. They might get worse, but this is your lot in your life. Maybe that voice has convinced you, you do not matter. Maybe when that stone rolled away from the entrance of Jesus' tomb, it just kept on rolling and rolling and rolling until it finally stopped blocking the entrance to your heart. You've got a stone sitting in the entrance of your heart, a giant stone, a huge stone, a heavy stone, and you think this is good news because you think the stone is guarding your heart. You think it's protecting your heart. But what if that stone at the entrance of your heart is not helping? What if it's imprisoning you? What if the reality of your life the last several years, as things have happened in your life, as you've experienced grief, as you've experienced loss and, and heartache, you've just been gathering stone after stone after stone, and you've built this massive stone wall around the door to your heart to make sure that nothing gets in, to make sure that nobody gets in, not even God gets in, if there even is a God. Because if there is a God, you wonder, why do my prayers keep going unanswered? If there is a God, why is my life filled with so much hurt and pain? Especially when someone I love dies. And make no mistake, there is a sting to death. And when we experience that sting, the hurt that comes when we are grieving, it's an emotional pain, sure, but there's also a physical toll that grieving, that death takes on us. Sometimes when we're in that season of grief, it's hard to eat, it's hard to sleep. You ever gone through a season in your life 
where maybe the best description of how you were in those moments was to say, I was a complete emotional, physical, spiritual wreck. But in that moment, I was grateful for the stone guarding the entrance to my heart. I was grateful that my heart was all walled up because my hurting and broken heart could not take one more punch. I want to show you a scene from a movie called Creed. You remember the Rocky movies? They made five or six hundred Rocky movies back in the <laughs> 80s, I think it was. Uh, when that franchise finally ended, they started a new franchise, the Creed franchise. I think there's three of those now. The first one, Rocky Balboa, played by Sylvester Stallone. We'll have subtitles so that you can understand what he's saying. Uh, Rocky Balboa has a friend, um, Apollo Creed, but his friend Apollo dies. In this scene, he is meeting Apollo's son for the first time. Didn't know Apollo had a son. And as you watch this scene, see if you can pick up on, see if you can notice the stone that's blocking the entrance to Rocky's heart. Take a look. How you doing? This is taken from the tenth round of the first fight, right? Good call. How'd you know that? I heard about a third fight between you and Apollo. Behind closed doors. That true? How'd you hear about that? Who won? It's kind of a secret. What'd you say your name was? I'm done. Okay. Well, so the girl said you wanted to talk about something? Yeah, I want to talk to you about training me. Training? <laughs> I don't do that stuff no more. Sorry about that. Listen, it's getting kind of late, kid, so I'm going to uh, close up. How good was he? Apollo? Yeah, he's great. He's a perfect fighter. Ain't nobody ever better. So how'd you beat him? Time beat him. Time, you know, takes everybody out. It's undefeated. Anyway, I got a lot. So when Mickey up. died, he came and talked to you, right? Taught you how to quit him. Took you to LA. Trained you. Brought you back. How do you know all this? How do you think? What are you, like a cousin? He's my father. No, yeah. I don't believe it. Call Marianne. Marianne, his wife. The house number still works? That's right. You haven't talked to her since the funeral. She said you gave a nice speech, though. Part of what we celebrate in the resurrection is this truth of our faith. God's love is undefeated. But I'm not sure if Rocky would believe that in that moment. Instead, Rocky says, time is undefeated. And some of us might get more time than others, but the time will come for all of us when we have to experience the sting of death, the death of someone we love or the sting, the hurt, the pain that comes when we face our own death. C.S. Lewis is one of the more helpful Christian writers and thinkers of the last century. Uh, C.S. Lewis wasn't a Christian for quite a bit of his life, and then through a 
friendship that he developed with J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of the Lord of the Rings books, the stone in front of C.S. Lewis's heart rolled away and he put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He was a single man until he was 58 years old, got married at 58, and then four years later he was single again when his wife died from cancer. And despite the tragedy of that loss, C.S. Lewis believed love was worth it. Love of God and love of others. He wrote a book as his wife was dying of cancer called The Four Loves. The book was published in 1960, the same year his wife Joy died. Here's part of what C.S. Lewis writes about love. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. When the women come to that tomb, that first Easter Sunday, and they see that the stone has been rolled away, they know it means something. I mean, something has happened on the inside. They will, they will come to know it means new life. It means resurrection. When the stone is rolled away from the entrance of Jesus' tomb, it means Jesus is no longer residing in the grave. When the stone is rolled away, it means Jesus wants to take up residence in the human heart. Behold, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock, the scriptures say. Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart and he's waiting for you to open the door and let him in. What if this Easter you allowed the resurrection to rock you? What if this Easter you took that vulnerable step and you let Jesus in? You let Jesus love you, hold you, heal you. You let Jesus change you. You let Jesus resurrect you. To love is to be vulnerable, and that's the way our God loves us. Jesus leaves his throne in heaven, and he comes to earth. He is born as a human being. Is there anything more vulnerable than a newborn baby? And then Jesus, out of obedience to his heavenly Father and out of love for you and me, Jesus, he does not fight back when he is arrested when he is falsely accused, when he is tried, when they put a crown of thorns on his head and they whip him and beat him and laugh at him and mock him and he allows himself to be nailed to a cross. Jesus hung up on the cross and then he rose up from the grave when the stone was rolled away. And here's some good news for us this Easter. Our God is still rolling stones away. And one of the great joys that I have being a pastor is listening as people from this congregation tell me the stories of how God is doing this in their life, how God's rolling away the stone that's been in front of their heart. This is a picture from student ministry prayer and worship night. A couple of months ago here at Hope Ankeny, we had 
I don't know, hundreds of middle school and high school students showed up in the middle of winter on a Wednesday night to open up their hearts in prayer and in worship. I was talking to one of the volunteers that night. His name is Chris. Chris and I were talking kind of in amazement about what we get to see God doing inside the hearts of the young people of this congregation. And at one point in that conversation, Chris asked me, Scott, do you remember the first time that we met? And I said, oh, I remember when you started coming to Hope. I remember you would show up late long after the service started and you wouldn't come into the worship center. Chris would just kind of walk the hallways and just kind of observe and, and, and take things in and then maybe eventually he would find a seat way in the back close to the door so he could escape as quickly as possible. He said, yeah, I remember those days, but, but that's not the first time that we met. I said, I don't remember the very first time we met. Then remind me, and Chris told me this story. Uh, this church, this congregation, Hope Ankeny, we started meeting uh, here in Ankeny for worship in March of 2007, about a mile right down Ash Street to the south. We were uh, Saturday nights at Resurrection Lutheran Church, and then the people from Resurrection worshiped on Sunday morning, and we were there. We had a great relationship with them for about a year, and then we moved across the parking lot to Prairie Ridge Middle School in the spring of 2007, and we started worshiping there uh, for 15 years at a middle school. In 2008, we were able to lease a warehouse space on Southwest 3rd Street here in town, kind of on the north side of the big John Deere plant, right next door to the Good Times Bar and Grill. <laughs> yeah, we thought it'd be funny if we put a sign in front of our place that said God Times. You got Good Times here, you got God Times there, but wisdom prevailed. Uh, we called that place the station, and the station was a, a really great place for midweek ministry. Uh, so on Wednesday nights, that's when the middle schoolers and the high schoolers came for Power Life and Ignition, and uh, we had classes for adults, and uh, we had vacation Bible school there, offices for staff, that sort of thing. During those years that we were at the station, Chris was telling me um, his heart was pretty far from God. It was very much like he had a stone sitting at the entrance of his heart, keeping Jesus out. And during those years, Chris said he was working basically as a bouncer at a pretty popular bar here in Ankeny. It was a bar that was known for having good live music. If you wanted to hear live music in Ankeny, the bar where Chris was the bouncer, that was the place to go. And then the final detail that Chris told me was the owners, the, the primary investors in this bar where he worked, uh, they were part of a motorcycle club a motorcycle club whose name comes from uh, words that we find in the Bible. I'll just kind of put it that way. So when the investors, the owners of that bar, found out there was a new venue in town that was playing live music right next to the Good Times Bar and Grill, they became determined to take out their competition. And they said to Chris, the bouncer, we want you to get a couple of guys, and we want you to go down there and make it known in, in, in no uncertain terms, they will no longer be playing live music in this location. Now, you got to understand, I am a farm kid from small town Iowa. I'm pretty naive. And so um, I've never really been scared. I've never been threatened because of my faith or because I'm a, a pastor. But when Chris was telling me that story a couple of months ago, my hands were starting to get a little sweaty. I was like, this sounds scary. Why don't I remember this? And then I remembered, oh, yeah, uh, Kay Hansen is the secretary at Hope Ankeny, and she is like a you know, ninja bouncer for our church. So nothing bad or scary is ever going to happen as long as Kay's around. Chris said he grabbed a couple of guys, and they showed up at the station. 
And when they saw the sign above the door that said it was a church, he said to the other guys, you go into good times and I'll be over in a couple of minutes. He comes into the station and he takes a look around, just kind of observing. And, and at one point I showed up. Welcome to Hope. It's no accident you're here. We've been praying for you. No, <laughs> I don't think that's what I said. Chris said, here's what I said. Uh, Chris said, I said, um, you can stay as long as you want. That's what he remembered. And he remembered that he snapped back at me when, when I told him he could stay as long as you want. He said, I don't have any time for God in my life. And he stormed out. Several years later, his marriage ended and his father-in-law said to him, encouraged him, invited him to come to worship here at Hope. And eventually, Chris started to come. Wouldn't come into the worship center. Just kind of observe, just kind of hang out in the back. Remember how Andy Dufresne uh, escapes from Shawshank? He gets this little pickaxe and he's just kind of chipping away at the stone wall of his prison cell for 20 years until he makes his way to freedom. That's kind of what God's been up to in Chris's heart, chipping away at the stone at the entrance of Chris's heart for these last several years. I asked Chris, would it be okay? I was talking with him earlier this week. Uh, would it be okay if I shared this story at our Easter services? And he said, absolutely, but Scott, you got to understand, that's not who I am anymore. I'm not that guy anymore. It, it pains my heart to tell you that there was a time in my life when I didn't have any time for God in my life. And I said, Chris, I get it. I understand it. Are God still rolling stones away? I want us to read this verse together. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Who will roll away the stone for us, the women ask? And the answer is it's the power of God. Who will roll away the stone? Who will remove the wall, the stone wall, and, and turn it into rubble that's guarding your heart, that's keeping the resurrection from rocking you? It's the power of God's love. God wants to replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. God wants to revive you. God wants to pour his spirit into you and give you life. God wants to give you a future and a hope. God wants to set you free. Andy Dufresne, 20 years chipping away before he makes his way to freedom. What about his buddy Red? 40 years going in front of the parole board. And remember what Red said in that clip we watched? He believes he's a changed man. The, the guy who committed the crime, that little kid, no longer exists. Yeah, Red has changed, but he is still in need of resurrection because he's surprised when they grant his parole. He, he is out of Shawshank by the end of that day. He has been released. He's on the outside, but he still he has no meaning and purpose in his life. He has no future and no hope. And then he remembers his friend Red, Andy. He remembers that Andy said, Red, if you ever get out of here, I want you to promise me you'll go to Buxton. And in a hayfield outside of Buxton, there's a long stone fence. And I want you to follow that fence to the north. There's a big oak tree on the north end of that stone fence. Underneath that oak tree, buried under the stones, Andy says to his friend Red, I'm going to leave a gift for you. So Red makes his way there. He has to dig through the stones. He has to roll the stones away till he can discover the gift that's buried behind the stone. And when he opens that gift, Red is resurrected. 
Red is given a future and a hope. Take a look. Dear Red, if you're reading this, you've gotten out. And if you've come this far, maybe you're willing to come a little further. You remember the name of the town, don't you? Say what to nail. I could use a good man to help me get my project on wheels. I'll keep an eye out for you and the chessboard ready. Remember, Red, hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. I will be hoping that this letter finds you, and finds you well. Your friend, Andy. Busy living or get busy dying. For the second time in my life, I'm guilty of committing a crime. Parole violation. Of course, I doubt they'll toss up any roadblocks for that. Not for an old crook like me. Fort Hancock, Texas, please. I find I'm so excited I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. A free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. stand with me let's pray together so Lord here we are at the end of another Easter service
Whether we came in uh, overflowing with hope or lacking hope, I pray, Lord, that you would meet us, that we would have an encounter with the resurrected Jesus today that would be life-changing. Even if it just means cracking that door to our heart just a little bit to let a little bit of hope in, Lord, would you help us know? Would you help us trust? Would you help us believe? The stone's been rolled away. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive, and that means life for us now and forever. Help us continue to take steps in the direction of crowning you the Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.